Want a smoother contour and more youthful-looking cheeks? Rediscover a younger-looking you by adding volume to the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC, part of the number one selling collection of dermal fillers, based on January 2022 provider survey data. With help from Juvederm Voluma XC and a licensed specialist, you can achieve a more youthful cheek look completely customized for your goals. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast with your host, me, Mike Sorelli. I've got a great guest today, Paul Hedrick. Um, I think it's safe to say now Austin royalty. Uh, <laughs> I would not go that far. Not, you know, he's, he's humble. I actually did get a call uh, from a friend who usually I ignore their phone calls. I'm sure you have those, those, those share of, uh, of people, not my parents. Let's put that out there. And uh, this guy's a good guy. He just sort of annoys me a bit. I told me, I, well, man, I got, I got to go. I'm, I'm interviewing someone. He's like, who? And I'm like, Paul Hedrick. And he's like, oh. He's like the Elon Musk of cowboy boots. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, I don't know what that means. Okay. Hey, so that's a pretty damn good comparison, dude. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I have not heard that one before. <laughs> well, Elon is, he's just sort of the new, new, it used to be like, hey, he's the Michael Jordan of cowboy boots. Now it's uh, Elon Musk. But want to dive in to Paul. Where, where were you born? Where were you raised? What was that like growing up? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Mike. Um, awesome to be here. We're actually literally next door to where I live. So this was a convenient podcast recording location. Uh, yeah, I was born in Houston, actually. Uh, born and raised Texan. Grew up in Dallas. I moved to Dallas when I was young. Uh, went to you know elementary, middle school, high school there. Uh, I, you know, I had a, I was a fortunate kid. You know, I, 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 it was a great town to grow up. I went to great schools. I had uh, went to a very small high school, for example, and was really was encouraged to do a lot of different things and was able to do a lot of different things because of that. And I think that was sort of the beginning of what was ended up being an entrepreneurial journey. But I didn't I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur or anything. I was not the kid who was inventing businesses and, you know, selling pens to my classmate and stuff. I, I was I was definitely um I actually wanted to be a an artist uh, for much of my childhood, uh, and then an architect um, later in high school, and then um, I just decided I want to be an, a businessman. <laughs> at one point, I didn't know what that meant, but uh, yeah, I would say I was definitely a a, a nerdy kid. Uh, you know, did well in school, um, but had a lot of interests, and it took me a long time to figure out you know, kind of how to wrangle those. Did, did I see you wanted to be a paleontologist at one point? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's on our Wikipedia page somehow. Um, I don't know how it got there. Uh, the answer is actually yes. When I was in fourth grade, I, I only know this because I confirmed this with my mom the other day. Um, she found a picture or something of uh, a project I made when I was in fourth grade that uh, said I wanted to be a paleontologist. I, I really liked fossils and 
you know, rocks and stuff when I was a kid. So, uh, like I said, I, I was a, I was a pretty dorky kid. <laughs> so at least we found one area in your life where you failed miserably. Yeah. I mean, you failed to attain that goal. So you are yeah. human. That's, that's good. What, what did your parents do? Uh, my dad was, uh, a consultant for many years. Uh, he actually worked for the same, uh, uh, consulting firm that I ended up working for later. Um, and so traveled a lot growing up, uh, you know, advising different businesses. Um, uh, my mom was a nurse until, uh, I was a second of three. And, uh, after I was born, uh, she focused on us full time and, yeah, I just had, a, honestly, had a wonderful childhood, like nothing to complain about. Um, uh, enough, a lot of leeway to be who I wanted to be. And um, uh, out of my siblings, I think I became, I was definitely the more independent, um, confident. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of faith in myself from an early age to do well in school, to go make my own destiny. And, and as a result, didn't really have to get a lot of, you know, didn't really have to get a lot of boundaries or, or push from my parents. So, yeah, honestly, just a lot of fond memories growing up. Um, had a lot of hardship to lean into later, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I, I love how you say, yeah, I did well in school. Yeah, dude, you got into Harvard. Yeah. I, I think you did beyond. I was waitlisted. I was waitlisted, but wait, I got wait in off listed. the waitlist. Yeah, I'm sure they, they, they're not mentioning that now no. uh, when they, they, they brag about you. you. It's funny you say nerdy. Like that is one of the best qualities you can have in high school. Like all the guys that were super focused to some degree were, were highly successful. My, my son just built a computer. I don't know where he gets it. I didn't graduate with my senior class. Um, so, it, it, no, no, that's, you know, well, nerds are definitely cool now. I, I don't know if they were cool when I was growing up. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember. I, so overseas, I used to listen to, I'm blanking on it. Um, it'll come to me. Uh, the guy became a uh, electronic music star. And I was listening to his music overseas, like prepping for missions. And then I saw his real name, not putting two and two together because the name of the band is, is different. And the guy was in my high school class. Oh, wow. And I remember he was just, you know, I want to say odd. He was just, he was a nice guy, not mainstream, didn't pick up a lot of attention, but uh, God, it'll come to me. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on that one. But so how many brothers and sisters? I have an older sister and a younger brother. You know, so you were the middle child. Middle child. I ignored? You know, I, it's funny. I, I see, you know, I see a lot of these, you know, on Instagram, you see these memes making fun of middle kids, middle, and I, I don't, I don't, there was nothing particularly notable about it. My brother's definitely a younger, a youngest, um, uh, but I, I don't, I don't even know if I could name what the quality of a middle kid is. <laughs> my, my brother is the middle and it's funny you say independent. You were always independent. He was by orders of magnitude more independent than my sister. Who's the oldest and myself. Who's the, well, maybe uh, that's it. Youngest. Oh, you're the youngest. I got I, it. Oh, I very much got away <laughs> with, uh, with murder. Cause I think my parents just didn't care by that point. What was the shift like from Dallas, Texas to Boston for, uh, for Harvard. That had, been, that had to be a little bit of a culture shock. Oh, definitely. I, and I literally had never visited before I went, decided to go. Um, uh, I just, I told my college counselor, I think at, at some point, like I had to, I had to pick which school I really would want to get in off the wait list. And it's like, well, I guess if I can get into Harvard, I'll go. Uh, just cause it 
you know, it's Harvard. Um, I didn't expect to get in. So I, I, yeah, I just never visited. And so I, I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know if it was like in an urban environment in a, you know, rural environment. Um, I knew I wanted to leave Texas. I'd been to Texas my whole life and I, something about the outside world <laughs> was calling me, I think to, I wanted to learn about it. I, you know, was curious and, but I, I think I've been away from Texas twice, four years for college and then two years, a couple of years out of college. And both times I found myself drawn back to Texas. I found myself drawn to what I, it, it highlighted uh, everything that I loved about where I was from actually. Um, so yeah, I, I, I joined, you know, the, the Texas club. <laughs> so there's a Harvard, Texas. Club. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not huge, but, um, we had our we had a good time. We, I mean, with the jacked up pickup trucks, like pull up to Harvard with the Texas flag. Yeah. And all. <laughs> you know, we didn't have many, not many people had cars there. That's the thing. It was an urban environment, which I, again I didn't know. Um, uh, but yeah, I'd say the biggest shock uh, was more. Hey, if you're in a school like that, there is there are hundreds of people better than you at every turn, and you know it was one of those you're never going to be the best person in any of those classes or, uh, and so it was, it was a humbling experience. Uh, I treated college as more of a, Hey, I'm in college. I want to have fun. Um, and you can have a lot of fun at those places too, believe me. Uh, but I, you know, I wasn't until junior senior year when I realized, okay, it's going to be really hard to stand out here. I got to start working on what's going to make Paul, Paul, you know, after college. And, uh, it was harder there, I think, than it would have been at many other places. Was it, would you describe it as cutthroat a little bit? I've heard, I've heard that about the Harvard MBA program that it's, it's pretty yeah, cutthroat. I, I would definitely say if you were trying to be top of the, you know, class, get high honors, if you're in pre-med, if you're in these, uh, pre-law, if you were trying to do things that made you that required a really good GPA and whatnot. Yeah, I was cutthroat. I went right down the fairway for economics, which literally fifty percent of the graduating class uh, majors in, and uh, <laughs> figured it was going to be a little easier to stand out from the crowd <laughs> in that major. Some people asked me why I majored in economics. That was pretty much the reason. I realized it had the least requirements out of any other major. And I could uh, take a lot of electives senior year. I took acting class uh, senior year, which was really fun. I think I enjoyed my electives more than my core curriculum, if I'm being honest. Uh, what's the bare minimum was my name in high school. So I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I've, so I've got to ask, how did you enjoy the winners in Boston? Because those are brutal. You know, when you're 19 and... Your, your BAC is above uh, legal driving limit for most of the time. You don't really uh, care that much. I think, uh, you know, if I'm being, yeah. <laughs> did, so did we leave a Brady fan? No, no, no I, I'm, a, I'm a Cowboys fan still somehow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a rough, that's rough. Long I, time. I, I'm a fair weather <laughs> fan. I will jump ship. Since Tom Brady went to my, uh, Rival high school, I, I just became a Patriots fan. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, he is the GOAT. He is the GOAT. He is the GOAT. It's crazy. He came back out of retirement. I know. It's insane. Did you see the memes? There's like, because he realized staying home with the kids would have been uh, 
insane oh man no i i feel bad there was a guy who bought his final game ball for like half a million dollars <laughs> it, it's that or he's just a marketing genius yeah. it was planned all along regardless the goat's back we Can't should, we should see a good uh season so your senior year you pretty much have zeroed in on should i say management consulting you know, the truth was at that stage, I had no idea what management consultants really did. I didn't, everyone was talking about this thing called iBanking. And I, I literally thought it was like, you know, like I, iPod, like it was like a technical, it was technological somehow, but it would just stood for investment banking. Um, I had no idea what that job was either, but I, everyone in those environments is always just gunning for the names and gunning for the, yeah. so yeah, I thought I wanted to do those things. I ended up not, uh, I ended up getting a job, uh, the job that I could, uh, that I could get really, which was a uh, options trading. And I was an options trader in Chicago briefly, which was a killer job. And I, you know, it, for, for a couple of years afterward, thought about whether I made the right move leaving it. Um, and it wasn't until after college that I realized like, Hey, I need to really focus and double down on my career and I need to focus on what was going to open up the most doors. And so I, I, after every day when I came home from work, uh, first six months out of college, I studied, uh, for case studies basically, uh, for managing management consulting interviews. And I just told myself, I set a goal. I'm like, I'm going to get a job at the best consulting firm in the world and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. And then, it, but it was after college because I, my, candidly, my grades were not good enough to get the job in college. I got rejected twice and, uh, yeah, I, a series of not my first rejection and not my last that led me to where I am now. What, what type of hours were you working with the, uh, options trader? Honestly, that was kind of nice. It was like 30, 40 hours a week. So I had plenty of time after work to, to study You're <laughs> for <kidding>. other things. <laughs> Cause you, I mean, you hear just the market horror hours, stories, you know, market it was hours. all, it was like a mental math job. It was basically, uh, yeah, it was all mental math. It was at a, at a, a firm that specialized in, in trading equity index options, what they were called. And you just tried to get in and out of positions all day. What, what were your most valuable lessons learned from that position? I mean, did you have great mentors? What, what did you take away and then segue into management consulting from there? Honestly, the biggest thing I learned was that I, it was more about myself. I, I wanted to have a wider breadth of exposure. I wanted to, I was, my twenties were a time that I needed to spend investing in myself and my career. And that did not mean going for the job that paid the most, um, nor the highest pedigree for that matter. It, it meant going for trying to find, spend my time learning and accelerating, uh, who I was in the business world, at least as fast as I could. And that wasn't a job was more of a, probably the fastest way to make a lot of money by 30, not so much, uh, the best way to expand. My and so mind. was it management consulting because they touch so many industries that, 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 that drew you in? Yeah. By this point I had figured out what a management consultant does and realized that it was, it was a pretty cool job. Uh, you're basically hired to, jump into a different business every one to three months, essentially, uh, immediately get accredited to be an expert. And by accredited, I mean, you just tell the client you're an expert uh, and you better figure out how to seem like one, uh, and really learn on your feet. And I couldn't think of anything better, uh, 
than being forced to learn on my feet and being around really world, really world-class people. And that's what I realized later was probably the best. I mean, the best part of the experience was every one of my colleagues similar, it was similar to being in an Ivy league school where everyone around you is good enough to get a job there. And, um, some ways I felt like an imposter, but I knew that knew I could do it. And that's where the confidence started building. I think that I needed a few years later and that I started to see how these businesses were operating and it's all normal people, you know, it's, it's normal people going to the office every day and, and everyone gets a job, you know, almost everyone gets a job and, you know, consulting for these really big corporations, you see a lot of people kind of, there to just to show up and punch your ticket and that's okay. And they're, they're an individual contributor maybe, and they want that to work to play a certain part in their life. And then you see other people who, who have risen up and you get to see this diversity of how people are approaching their careers, which I'd never seen before. And, mm-hmm. and it was a lot more tangible. And so, yeah, that was the main draw for me. Management consulting is so interesting to me. It's almost like you, you look at these companies and you ask yourself, why would they need consultants to come in and solve the problems for them? But they're looking at the problems from six inches away where you have the luxury of coming in looking from feet away because they're so engrossed in the day-to-day. They just don't have the time to, to, to take that step back and look. And consultants have developed up developing pattern recognition and uh, at the highest level. And they, they can, they've seen what great looks like. And many times it takes not so we, we just hired a consulting firm. I never would have thought we would, we would get to that point, but we just, you know, 10 years after I left the industry, we just hired a, a you know, kind of a blue chip consulting firm, if you will, to, to help us work through some things. And it was extremely helpful. And I'd say, yeah, it was all, it's because they were bringing, you know, pattern recognition and expertise to bear in a high octane short term period. And sometimes a business needs that to see what, to see what they really have ahead of them. It's, it's funny you mentioned pattern recognition. Sometimes, some, you know, some things just cannot replace experience. It's just, it's iterations. You just have to give it time and so many iterations under your belt before those patterns uh, pick up. I, I'd be interested, what in your opinion beyond the knowledge makes it a great management consultant? Is it the ability to build relationships with the, with the people you're working with within the companies? I mean, what makes a great management consultant stand out? Yeah, I think you can, there are, there are different types of great for sure. There were the, you know, there were the senior partners that you knew that were, you know, just great at what you said, relationships and, and we're always going to, they were going to find the way to get in the ear of the CEO and be a trusted partner and then always have business coming in. And those, those firms don't like to think about themselves as, as sales organizations, you know, they don't like, they, at, at where I work, they didn't, they didn't even use the word sales. It was a bad word. Um, but the truth was that the people who were up the top making the most money were the people who were the best salesmen. But the people who I think ended up also generating maybe the most respect were the people who uh, knew that this was what they wanted to do. And because, uh, you know, frankly, most people realize, you know, figure out in their first year or two if it's something they want, you know, do I want to be a partner or not? I knew three months in that I was not going to go for partner track. Um, and so it's a bit of a self-selection in that regard, but, but the people who are, who know why they're, they want to do it and it's a good reason. It's because they're great, uh, problem solvers and they're just so energized by solving problems, um, that they'd rather see a lot of them than, than kind of work their way through one system or, or change careers a few times. And so, 
Yeah, I really admire a lot of my you know former colleagues in that regard, but I knew I wasn't that wasn't going to be me. I needed to go all in on a few things. So what, what, what was it in particular that you knew three months in you were not, this was not the permanent track. This was just a stepping stone to what you wanted to achieve later in life. Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, I had two jobs before, well, three, I guess, if you count the, the trading firm, um, uh, before Tecovis and, uh, a source for starting my business. I guess we haven't introduced Tecovis yet, <laughs> but. Oh, we're going to get that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I would say each of them brought me closer to operating, and and I knew when I was a consultant that I, I was you know you basically when, when most people leave consulting firms and you ask them why they're leaving to either join a uh, an operating company or or start, or start their own or, or something else they they have a pretty common answer as to why which is they're tired of doing the work and then handing it off and then not seeing it through the execution and they're like. I want to see it through. And I, and I knew that I wanted to see it through too. I thought that a lot of the most interesting decisions, uh, were being made, you know, outside the meeting and outside the steering committee. And, uh, I, it wasn't as much about seeing it through for me, at least then it was more, man, that's a cool decision that that guy's responsible for making. I I want to be in that seat. (laughs) And I knew I had to work my way toward getting in that seat somehow. Okay. So we've been an option trader. We've done the management consulting piece. You've got a unique look because you're wearing, I'm assuming you're wearing cowboy boots and all your suits. Yeah. <laughs> or were you told, hey, that's well, not. Yeah, that was the other thing. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really, uh, it was kind of frowned upon. You're really, you're, you're told as a consultant to be kind of blend in. Like you, you, you wear Brooks Brothers and neutral colors and, and, you know, Cole Haan and you never want to be the guy who's wearing the too expensive thing or the too flashy thing or the, or the signature look. <laughs> uh, you want to be the guy who's just kind of, a lot of times I don't want to know that you're there, you know? So no, I, I actually, what happened was I moved to New York. Um, I lived in back actually back where I grew up in Dallas when I worked in consulting, although I traveled a lot, it's a travel job. Um, I moved to New York to work for a private equity firm that focused on consumer and retail. And that's when I, I had already had the the taste of Texas post-college and I'd really lived there for the first time as an adult in my view. And I was so certain that that's who I wanted to be and where I wanted to be long-term that I started wearing boots in New York, essentially. I mean, I always had them, right? But I I really started wearing them pretty much every day uh, when I was going out and when I went to the office, Uh, when I went to New York, because I wanted to at that point, I knew I wanted to be the Texan guy, <laughs> and I, I I was proud of where I was from, and uh, yeah, I never thought about it beyond that, but yeah, that's when I started wearing them. So, always representing Texas in some way to the best of your ability. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I hung out with Texans in New York. You know, I went to see Texas country musicians, you know, uh, Robert O'Keen, Josh Abbott, Randy Rogers, Corey Mora, a lot of these guys. Those guys go to New York City? Every now and then. In fact, I, what made me angry when I lived in Texas is Texas Independence Day every year, uh, first week of March, they did a concert that weekend in New York with, but it was just to draw all the, well, we, so we had, we, we created a name for ourselves. We called ourselves Texpats. Uh, and so I only hung out with Texpats pretty much, which looking back was pretty close minded, but. That's what I did. It, it is so funny. You, you take a Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, New York. If you wear cowboy boots and a suit, you stand out. Sometimes That's right. not in a good way, but you do that in Dallas and Houston. It's it's the norm. Oh, it's yeah. the norm. 
I'm okay. trying to make it more the norm now, which we're on our way to do that. You're doing a pretty damn good job. So you take one more job in with a trading firm. Yeah, so it was a, a, a retail and consumer-focused private equity firm. So this is when it really started to come a little more full, full circle for me. I I knew I wanted to be work with products, physical products, uh, brands. Uh, I was a product kind of nut growing up. Would you know read read consumer reports, and I, I loved cars. I, I liked. Uh, uh, gear and and you know got into the blogs later like Uncrate, um, uh, at Gear Patrol and whatnot. And so I knew I was drawn to that. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew that I wanted to work. I could relate more easily to to things that I interacted with and, and bought and sold myself. Which you know it, that's not a, a very unique thing to to notice. I think a lot of people like to get into the business of consumer because they can relate to it more directly. But that was my line into working in consumer was I got an opportunity to work for an investment firm that, you know, basically invests in and buys and sells consumer brands. Um, they're actually now the largest consumer retail uh, investment firm in the world. Uh, at the time it was smaller and I ended up working and mostly for a company that, that made and sold candy. So I know a lot about, Gummy bears, jelly beans, um, candy corn. Uh, they were all, the all the essentials <laughs> to a good diet. <laughs> Not chocolate, yeah. So before we get to the mid roll, what we call the hard questions, when did the idea hit? Was it? I mean, was it was it gradual, or did all of a sudden it hit hard like a bunch of bricks? A little bit of both. I I had done almost getting close to my two year stint, which there was sort of the the standard length of time to work in my role. Uh, although I had the option to stay longer, I had applied to business school. I actually got rejected from the only two schools that I applied to. Um, and that was literally the reason that got my juices kind of flowing as to needing to figure out like, Oh, what, what the hell do I do next? And um, I remember getting drinks with a colleague and, and he said, Hey, you know, we meet a bunch of these CEOs who run consumer businesses. Like how hard could it be? Uh, which, you know, at the time, luckily I was a little, uh, under the influence. And so I, I didn't, uh, <laughs> quite grasp how naive of a statement that was. Uh, and it, and it was, it was a first spark, at least in my mind that, that maybe I could think a little bit more about starting something. And then, and then basically the wheels started really turning and I, uh, I started, I actually, I looked down at my feet, um, literally like the next week and it got me thinking about, well, what do I like in my life? What do I buy in my life? How do it, it, I should probably do something in, in consumer and products because that's where I, I'm, I have the most expertise and I could theoretically, uh, have a bit of a head start compared to a lot of other industries. And, and I just remember I had this pair of ostrich boots on and they, I'm like, man, this experience of buying them was so in many ways, unmemorable. I couldn't even really name the brand. It turned, it was a, actually was one of the retailers, private label brands as it turned out, but I didn't even, I didn't even register that, you know, the experience was not a great one. Um, you know, I had to go home to Dallas to, to even buy them. Um, and I just, I, we were, I was at a brand building firm. Like we, we, we knew the power of brand. We knew that 
that brand is all about connecting a consumer and a customer with with uh, a feeling and a story and and a, and a physical product in, in many times and nothing in this category as I as I viewed it was doing that for me and and then every single time I looked into it the more I realized like oh I could do this one thing better we could have great customer service we could I could make him good looking I could make him better price because I could we could do this different business model because no one is selling direct to consumer and so it was one of those things where. It was a bit of a slippery slope, um, but uh, the idea became very obvious to me over time. This, and we're going to get into this after the break because this was months, though, not not days. Just the fact, even if it was a year to come up with the idea, to go into a what I describe as a legacy industry and try to disrupt it. What's even more insane to me, and I've written a book on talent acquisition and assessing. Uh, character is that two MBA programs rejected you into their programs. I bet they are licking their chops to this day saying who the hell's in charge of our selection process. That's insane. I think they're okay. It was Harvard and Stanford. They're, they're the, they're the most (laughs) exclusive business schools. Well, we can say Stanford and uh, Harvard just uh, don't come to Texas. We do things here a little differently. (laughs) I'm glad Um, they did. So before we get to the mid-roll break, the hard questions. What is the biggest regret of your life? And I don't accept I have no regrets as an answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the truth is I try not to think too much about... Uh, I will preface by saying I try not to think a bit too much about regrets because I, I, I think it's more productive to be grateful than regretful. Um, and, you know, honestly, I'm really lucky. I, I, you know, from my, from my upbringing to the positions that I was in, uh, to my agency that I had to make a choice, um, uh, that I did, which was to quit a, a, you know, a high paying job, uh, and risk it all. Like most people don't have that. And so I, I think the gratitude and the regret are extremely, uh, outweighed, um, in proportion, but, you know, to be reflective about it, I, I think it would be, I interpreted being independent, being an entrepreneur as being headstrong and being kind of in my own universe. And I didn't ask for, if I were talking to myself, you know, even a year ago, if not seven years ago, I would say, you know, talk to more people, get help, um, ask for more help. You don't just, you know, you, you're going to have to figure out enough on your own, like share the load a little bit. Um distribute leadership, uh, ask for ex- call for experts, create a network, talk to therapists. I, I didn't start talking to a therapist until this year. And I, I wish I had done that earlier. So I, I think every part of my life would be better if I were, if I had just had a little bit more of a, a help and networking oriented mindset early. I hated networking. So I just avoided. Yeah. And you know, I, when I was trying to figure out how to start the company, I didn't, I didn't get hire a, a sourcing agent or anything. I just, I just kind of blunt forced it, which in, you know, many times was the right call, but most of the time there's nothing wrong with ask for help. So before we get to the last question, I've got to ask you based off that response. And this is one of my weaknesses. Do you consider, you know, I don't want to so, say so much as a, a weakness. I would say it for myself, but is it hard for you to ask for help or a younger Paul? Was it harder to ask for help? Yes. I, 
I, I, it's, I've gotten a lot better at it, I think, uh, because I've, I've realized that self-reflection and being vulnerable with your team is a, is a big way to, to move the ball along. And like, life is short. Like, don't, don't hide stuff. Uh, get it, get ahead of it. But that has not been a natural instinct of mine by any means. That has been a learned, a learned and always improving. I'd say a lot of room for improvement still, uh, skill. I, I, hey, I don't care if you're 34 or 74. There's, there's always room for uh, improvement. Last right. question before the mid-world break. Hardest decision you've ever had to make? Yeah, there's, uh, there's been a lot. I, you know, I, we've, we've had to, I, there's these moments in your, in your journey as an executive, as a CEO, as a founder, that every time will feels like, Oh, that was maybe that was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, I know it's not the question. I think the hardest, as far as hardest decision, uh, honestly, just in terms of gravity, like it's the easy one. It was fully committing to one, to one idea. It was, I, and it should have been hard and it was appropriately hard that I, I think even I underestimated how much effort it would take. Um, and I knew it was going to take a lot, and I was afraid of of committing a big chunk of my life to one thing. Uh, you know, wake up five, ten, fifteen years later, and you've and maybe the worst thing that you know the worst thing that could have happened maybe was not a quick failure or a quick success, but something in between. And that I, I, that really uh, prevented me from going all in on one thing until I absolutely had to. I mean, I literally. The decision to start a company was not hard for me because of a lot, a myriad of factors. I was in a, I was 26. I had, I had, I was lucky to have paid off. You know, I didn't have any debts. I, I, you know, had a fortunate upbringing. I had a lot of agency. I had a great job, um, and I could, I could risk it all. That wasn't the hard part. Uh, it was, it was committing to one thing, and so I wasn't until I I moved to Austin. I was still actually working on a couple ideas, and it wasn't until I had to write a I had a rule for myself. As soon as I had to write a ten thousand dollar check for something, I needed to just to just bet on it. And I mean, shoot, I made the decision to start the company eight years ago, and we're still in the thick of it. I mean, this is a long it's going to take a long time. <laughs> so, I, you know, it was hard, but it, it should have been hard, brother. If you consider this a long time. With the fact that you founded Decovis in 2015 to where you guys are now, I, I, I have no doubt there. I mean, you were working the longest hours of your life, but rarely do you see a company this successful so quickly that has built such a strong brand for which a culture, an established culture is behind it. That's, that's impressive. But we're going to take our mid-roll break and we will be right back. And we are back with the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast with Paul Hedrick, founder and CEO of Tecovis. So we left off, you are 26, making a damn good career on a trajectory, and you say, to hell with it, I'm going to start a boot company. <laughs> now, I've got to ask, I, it was either your parents or friends that you brought this idea to, and they're like, oh, Paul, that's cute, but why would you give up your career to risk it all? Or it may have been, Paul, you're just damn crazy. Let this go. Yeah. Uh, you know, the truth is I, I, I didn't get a ton of pushback from my parents. I, and a lot of, most people I think understood that this was something that could scale quickly or fail quickly. And that, 
you know, yeah, I'd be a big financial risk in some ways. Uh, but I, I would probably be better off whether it succeeded or failed. Now, my college roommates who were all from Boston in, in, in you know, New York area, they, they did not understand. <laughs> they, they said, you're quitting your job in private equity to start a cowboy boot store. And, I, you know, I said, that's not exactly how I would describe it. But, uh, yeah, essentially, yes. And so, yeah, I, I would say, I, but the, the, actually, the, the only people that really kind of scared, almost you know, scared me off or gave me pause were the people who I did end up talking to some people who had been in the footwear industry. And, you know, honestly, those guys were were not encouraging. Um, and they told me how challenging starting a footwear company is and how the inventory is hard and there's a million sizes. And, you know, why the hell would you ever start a footwear company and that, and those are probably the only people I should have listened to. And, uh, but luckily I, I, I had enough check marks in the pro side of my pro and con sheet that I, I still believed enough in the opportunity to do it. And I'm glad I did. Although it is hard to run a shoe company. <laughs> it's so funny. Those little techniques, the pro and con list, as you're sitting in your apartment at the time, probably like yeah. literally like writing, writing this on a whiteboard or uh, down on a piece of paper. I, I, I had an Excel file Excel too. Excel very, very, very trader uh, private <laughs> equity of you. I, you know, I, I got to switch my tone up almost. Uh, who do you think you are that you can come <laughs> in and disrupt a legacy industry owned by companies like Tony Lama, Lucchese, Ariat? No, but seriously. You're looking at this. What what do you possibly see that you could do differently to come in and, and gain market share? Yeah, uh, you know that uh, I definitely had that reaction from from some people. They a lot of people were asked me the first question they asked me was like, "Well, have you made a cowboy boot before? Like, are are you from? Is your family in the industry?" And I said, "Well, no, I don't think that's. I'm not. I'm not going to make them." by hand, like myself, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm planning to go to whoever the best people in the world, uh, you know, are at making this stuff and then, uh, take the best product, make it better. And, and yeah, then I, and the make it better part is, is the answer to your question, which is, you know, I, uh, there wasn't something that I wanted in the market and I, and I trusted my instincts on that front. And I trusted myself knowing that there's enough people out there that were thinking like me that, what I wanted was a more approachably priced boot, a comfortable boot, a, a boot that I could buy on the internet and actually, uh, you know, the same way that I buy a lot of my stuff on the internet, uh, a boot, you know, a company that has great customer service, uh, a company that whose values I share. And, and so I, I knew that there was, there was like 10 of these things on the list that we could do better than everyone else. And no one else was doing more than two or three of them. So yeah, you had, you, there was definitely a, there's definitely a confidence that came from knowing that and knowing that at some point, you know, most ideas sound like stupid ones until they work. And believe me, like I remember someone telling me on the phone, you know, for advice and they're like, Oh, no one's going to ever buy cowboy boots on the internet. And I'm like, you realize what you sound like? Like people said the same thing about every other category. Like I can't believe you still have that mindset. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously it was true. Um, that you could. And by the way, that, that what also made, gave me confidence is that it was, the product was, the experience was not great. You know, I went, there was only one company, one brand that even had like a add to cart 
button on their website in 2014. I mean, this category was behind the times. I, I can't blame the person for saying that because as unremarkable as the boot buying experience is, which it's just like athletic shoes. You go to one of those large stores, it's like here are all the ten and a halves yeah, from like all a the grocery brands. store. Here are all the ten and a half double E's for cowboy boots, all the different brands. But I don't think you know, five years ago I don't think I would have bought in a boot online. It just that I mean yeah. that had to seem like a gamble. Well, that was a hurdle we needed to get over because that definitely was the mindset. And I just believed that the formula that we were gonna create would would get people over that fact, um, which, you know, it really had to do with making it more approachable and making it. And so what were all the barriers that were preventing people from potentially buying boots on the internet? Uh, it was questions about fit, questions about quality, questions about brand story, questions about merchandising and, and what do they need and what, and, you know, we solved a lot of that with simplicity and approachability. We, we, designed one cowboy boot, one roper boot, one cowgirl boot, one booty. Um, you know, we, we made, we were very clear about where they sit in the market. We were very clear about why they were priced the way they were priced. Um, we had free shipping returns you, 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 in exchanges. We did a lot of this stuff that was table stakes now, but at the time was actually innovative and, uh, no knew that a lot of people would still opt for the physical experience and that's okay. Um, but kind of in the back of my mind knew that at some point, you know, we were going to be more than that as well. And that we'd get there at some point. So beyond all these smaller items you were going to innovate on the business model, you were going to double down on the direct to consumer because no one was doing it. At yeah. The time. There were no direct to consumer Western footwear or apparel brands at that time. So you settled on Leon, Mexico, where you make your boots. What what drove you there? What research? And then did you did you just say, "Hey, I'm going to buy a ticket, go down there, and start talking to people"? <laughs> Pretty much, I, the, I'd say that there were two major drivers in in the discovery sort of phase, which of figuring out the Tacovas journey. One was the scale of the industry. You know, I had no idea if it was a a hundred million dollar industry or a hundred billion dollar industry. It turns out. About $4 billion of cowboy boots are sold in the U.S. every year, which was, you know, to me, bigger than a bread box. <laughs> um, you know, definitely bigger than I thought. Um, and the second thing was, uh, and if I hadn't found out that out, I probably wouldn't have gotten to the next step. And the second, the second thing I found out was that pretty much all of the greatest handcrafted uh, brands had started making boots in this one town in Mexico uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and transitioned most U.S. production down there, um, in part because this town had been, for really since before World War II, had been making uh, shoes and you know great welt, what's called welted, you know Goodyear welted and Blake welted uh, leather shoes for that long, and had developed a bit of a cottage industry down there. And so it's like, okay, great, I know what the market's like, I know where to make it. Uh, Sure, the rest will be easy. So, no, I, I, I got a, I made a lot of cold phone calls. I called a lot of custom boot makers. Actually, I found a list from, I think Texas Monthly had this list that was like 20 years old of all the Texas boot custom, and most of them were no longer alive, unfortunately. But um, a few people answered the phone, and a couple of them took a, took a liking to me, and, you know, were late, you know, these are older 
industry vets probably close to retirement and they said, Hey, I'll take you under my wing. You should, you should go to, you should fly to Leon. Here's the name of one factory I know. And, um, yeah, but I, I, I cold emailed a factory and flew down there and came with a PowerPoint presentation that I don't <laughs> think I opened. And then, uh, he quickly rejected me and sent me across the street to another factory and they said yes, thankfully. That, that is amazing. Now, what facilitated the move from Dallas to Austin to start this venture? Yeah, I was living in New York at the time and knew that I wanted to move to Texas to start my business. And I was sort of between living in Dallas and Austin. And, you know, honestly, I, the, the main reason I picked Austin was uh, I just wanted a new adventure and I had never really been there. And uh, every time I looked into the town, I, I thought it was a, I thought it'd be a cool place to start a business and, you know, it was very entrepreneurial. There was a lot of tech industry there and felt like the best place to start a new Western brand. Now, what I didn't realize was that not having any retailer, retailer apparel companies here was actually going to make it extremely challenging to start a business in a town without a lot of, um, you know, industry talent already there, but, uh, we're, we're figuring that out now, but I, it's a great town. I love it. And I actually thought I was, I thought I was late to the game in Austin in 2014. Turns out I was wrong about that. Well, you've definitely overcome those uh, those obstacles. Tell me about the early days in Tecovis. Were I mean, were you bootstrapping this thing more or less? Friends and family? How big was the initial team? Yeah, well, I really leaned into the bootstrap uh, word <laughs> because it literally means you know you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which no pun on words. Very few companies could say they were literally bootstrapping a a bootstrap company, but, um, tried to, my, I endeavored to bootstrap it. I got it basically all the way to, to launch. Um, you know, I, I had spent every dollar in my savings account. I cashed out my 401k, paid a big tax penalty. I don't recommend that. Um, I sold my BMW and bought a 20 year old car. I went about $30,000 in credit card debt. So, fall 2015 was very challenging and I realized that I couldn't afford the inventory bill. And so first of all, I committed to a big inventory number, which I had faith that we could sell through. Um, and we did, but, uh, yeah, I, I ended up raising a friends and family round that, that fall, um, sort of after launch and kind of, as soon as money came into account, I would, I would pay a, pay a supplier this, pay the rent there and, um, you know, realize that we, we, we were going to have to do this a little differently, you know, um, from a lot of other companies. We weren't going to be able to raise, you know, as much money maybe as a lot of other companies. We were a cowboy boot startup. You know, most tech investors weren't going to take a look at it. Most venture investors weren't going to take a look at it. Um, we eventually raised money every year and, and you know, after the first three I'd say it got a lot easier to get people to believe in our in our mission and our 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 vision to create a really big company. But those first two or three years were yeah, people didn't a lot of no's, a lot of people who did not understand what we were doing. And you know, credit, you know, uh, I, I could have I should have done a better job <laughs> explaining it. But at the end of the day, I just don't. At some point, I got to see it to believe it. You know, most entrepreneurs that have been successful have said to me something along the lines of you can choose like one or two things in your life when you're an entrepreneur. And one of those things is already chosen the company. So it's the company and family, it's the company and health. 
did you, I mean, did you even have a social life during those early years? Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it, obviously you, you have to, it's going to consume a much bigger part of your life than, than, than work will for, for most people, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't married. I, uh, I didn't have kids or a pet and, you know, once you take those out of the equation, I mean, that left a lot of room to, to focus on myself and the business and my, and my friends. And I, I, yeah, I, 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 I really believed in having balance early. And even though a big part of my life was going to be Tecovis, I, I didn't want to be a hermit and I'd seen people do that. And I, so no, I, 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 I definitely tried to balance my life as much as possible. And luckily I was in a town that was pretty fun town to hang out in. So wasn't too hard to find people to get a drink with when I really needed it. <laughs> there, there's no shortage of fun here in Austin. And I learned that the hard way my first two, uh, two years when I was going through my MBA program. Uh, not the model student, let's just put it that way. Was there a time in year one or two where you thought to yourself, we may not make it? I, you know, honestly, it didn't come in those first two years. I think by far and away the most existential risk we've ever faced. Uh, honestly, I wish it had come in those years because I would have would have been nice to learn those lessons early earlier. You know, COVID was was by far and away the most challenging time our business has ever experienced. Um, you know, 30, 40 plus percent of our business wiped away overnight. Uh, and that was a very tough weekend week turned into month months. Uh, and you know, we, we had to reduce our, we did, we did a reduction in force, you know, laid off a third of our team, uh, had to raise money to, to have enough money to support our budget for the year and took six months to do that. And, you know, so I, that was by far and away the most existential risk. And thankfully there was enough, belief in our vision and we had a nut, we had a great team who was ready to kind of hunker down and, and do what needed to get done. But yeah, my, my sanity was not tested as much in the first couple of years. Uh, I think because I was powered by a lot of naivety, honestly, in the first couple of years, the truth is if most people had looked at our balance sheet and our, and when we needed to raise money next and what results we needed to hit to go do those things, they, they would have, been nervous. I should have been nervous. Um, but I had a bit of a blind faith in, in the business and the ability that, yeah, we, I know this, we have, we make a great thing. I know, I know if just more, more people could see it and experience it, it's going to keep growing. And, and so, yeah, every year we were able to set a big goal and blow through it and set another big goal and blow through it. And, and I think because of that, we were able to you know, build a little enough scale to withstand a, a very challenging time later. Before we get to what I think sets Tecovis apart, and I want to dive into where you drove that, you know, one of the things about successful CEOs is, and this is my observation, where a lot of people will describe them as hard-headed. They don't necessarily use that in a great context. It's you see the field for what it is, or you have a vision, and you just refuse to accept no for an answer. And you sort of alluded to that, that you were hard-headed earlier on. Do you see that as both a strength and a weakness or just a strength? Uh, definitely both. Uh, I think it's a, it's a weakness at some points. 
Uh, I would say it's increasingly a weakness when the company and relationships for that matter need, need an evolution in thinking when it's the critical time, when, when your belief is driving, um, all, you know, a lot of the value in the business, then complete strength. And I, and we wouldn't be here where we are today. I think if I, if I didn't have some of that stubbornness and that, that vision for where we were going, you know, candidly, we're now at a point where I think we, we benefit less from that than, than we did before. And, you know, a lot more, you know, we, the, the running the business today is more about aligning people around, around the vision, getting other people to buy into it, um, figuring out how to scale it operationally and, uh, what I like to call hand to hand combat <laughs> and, uh, a lot of, a lot more, a lot less, let me brute force it and a lot more, how do we get a, a team and, and hundreds of people out there to execute on a vision, which is a very different skill set than being hard headed. I, I love the war analogy and there are so many parallels between war and business. It, it's not even funny. I, this is why, you know, I, I say business is war by nonviolent means, but let's be honest, sometimes it gets a little violent. Yeah. Hopefully nonviolent. <laughs> not, not violent. So, you know, COVID impacted almost everyone to some degree, whether you're the leader of an organization, CEO, or just, you know, parent of uh, a single parent, or even sitting in your apartment uh, alone. What was the greatest leadership lesson you learned from COVID for, for our listeners? I think that was the time that it became so obvious that I needed to hug the people around, like talk more often, focus on how people were feeling, really get in touch with um, uniting around the, the cultural part of what we were doing. And, you know, the truth is for me that I, I, it took a bit of a crisis for me to realize how important that was when you shouldn't just be doing that in a crisis. That should be the day-to-day operating model of any business and any leadership team that's high-functioning. And, it, I, you know, I, I'd say it took a crisis for for me to sort of realize what a, what a scaled company CEO needs to start doing more. Now that was, that was definitely wartime, you know, CEO, uh, frame of my life for sure. Uh, it was a lot of, Hey, we got to set, we got to, we got to be really, uh, disciplined in these areas. We have to make a few bets that we know, uh, we're going to have to have to drive a lot of faith behind and it's going to be a very simple, uh, plan to get out of this. But the people side, you know, we had, and is also working through the virtual side of things too, which is now going to be the, you know, the operating model of a lot of businesses for better, for worse, uh, it's going to be more hybrid. And I think it forced people to, you know, I think a lot of people just went to the office and, you know, played, paid lip service to, to what it meant to work at a company and a business. And, you know, it really, it, it's still, it's still hand to hand combat. It's still one-on-one. It's still cultural. It's still part of a team. And I think COVID for us was, good in that regard and that it forced us to get closer but it, it, it shouldn't have been shouldn't have been the only reason we did that adversity can really bring people together especially teams um it's yeah. funny you mentioned culture because i want to get into that you see so many brands and every company has a, uh, a soul though it's it, it, you know to some degree you see so many products out there that still do well but they're not soulful mm-hmm. you built something with the covis and this is not only from looking at what you got online, the message, 
your social media, but actually being in your HQ because I you know, built a relationship with you guys because you basically sent me to Mount Everest. Thanks for that on, uh, <laughs> on your dime. Awesome. Uh, it was a great trip. That's but, great. I mean, you guys have, you know, is it safe to say you guys have democratized Western wear in a sense? Yeah, that's, that, I, I like that phrase. I actually used it a lot in the first couple of years um, when I was describing the opportunity. I'd say, I'd say that was a big part of it. I'd say that we actually, uh, our, our, our vision now, our, our, our really our mission uh, is to free the spirit uh, of the American West that exists within everyone. And, and I, you know, I think you mentioned soulful. It's, we're, 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 we're kind of blessed with, with where we work today, what, what we're working in, what we work with, what, we're, what we make for people. It's a, it's a piece of American heritage. It's, it has a story. And it was something that drew myself to it very early on was um, when I was thinking about the different categories that you could start a business in. And I, I thought about others for sure. This was the first idea and the one I couldn't get away from, if you will. But you know, people who people, if you're wearing a pair of cowboy boots, you're ready to get asked about them and you're going to get asked about them and you're going to get complimented on them. And they almost all have a story. And that's, and that's really when your main thing has a story, then it's easier to be soulful, I guess, to, to use your words. But we also, it's, it's, it's really cool to now have work, work with people who sometimes see that vision better than, better than I could even. And, and sometimes I would get in my head and, you know, I, I had to I had to be both the numbers guy and the COO and the CEO and the designer, and and I think a lot of times I I was so focused on just setting a goal for the next year, setting a goal for the next year, and making sure all the pieces in place were getting there. And sometimes I lost track of the hey, what could this really be five years from now, twenty five years from now, and and couldn't this keep going? Like, what's to say that it couldn't just convince a lot more people. It's not just about giving someone a better option who was already going to buy a cowboy boot. It was about actually representing something cultural about our country and representing the best of what, what the American spirit can represent. And I think, honestly, that sounded cheesy to me at first. And it wasn't until pretty recently when I realized, hey, by the way, we have to we have to have something like that for this to keep <laughs> for us to keep going. But the good news is it's there and it's authentic and it's real. And, and if you, a cowboy, the spirit of the cowboy, I think the big thing we're trying to do to get back to the democratized Western, I think there's a lot of people out there who think, Oh, I can't rock cowboy boots or I'm not a cowboy or I'm not from Texas. Why would I buy it? I live in New York. That's why I can't do it. And those are the people that were, we gotta we gotta figure out that screw that that's that's different in their brain, and we have to figure out how to tell them why that's not true. Because really, all the American West represents it's the frontier. It's making a choice. It's believing in yourself. It's being genuine. It's being authentic. It's being confident. It's being welcoming. It's being all these things that you know we've we've sort of innately tried to do from the beginning, but we've never really sharpened our approach and our language around it. But yeah. It's funny. You go overseas, even in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, you, every deployment, somebody would come up, you know, one of the foreigners or nas- local nationals to say, are, are you an American cowboy? I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's synonymous with American. We are seen as cowboys to, to the world. And you, you brought that into reality. I mean, this is coming from a kid who's born in the Bay Area. 
uh, of yeah. California, and, and you can rarely see me without a a pair of uh, of boots and a pearl snap shirt and a pearl snap shirt. So the mustache, we we had to get there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to let you go before we end here, because um, I mean, in the SEAL teams, when we couldn't grow beards, we'd have mustache con- uh, you know contests, and you would have won one of those contests. Man. But rarely did the guys ever keep the mustache. I mean, you've, you've, you've had this mustache for how many years now? Almost five. Almost five. Is it here to stay? You know, it's hard to answer that question. I, I can't. Uh, <laughs> it's harder than the other questions you're asking. <laughs> did, did, well, let me ask you it's, this. Here, it's here indefinitely. I'll say that much. Okay. I mean, did it affect your, your dating life at first? Because, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure you had to come up with a whole new repertoire of I have my girlfriend. She's here. Um, no, I, uh, I, yeah, I grew it to, to, for Halloween one year, actually to, to address as Freddie Mercury for Halloween, which was an interesting costume, but I had fun. And, and, and then November rolled around and then, yeah, met, was able to go on dates with people who somehow didn't hate it and just kept it. And then, at one point, I realized that the majority of our team had never seen me without one. And at, at that point, I was like, well, I got to just keep it then. So, Well, I know some of your teams in the audience. Has there ever been wagers on the team hitting some number or accomplishing something <laughs> where you would shave the mustache? Have we, I have hope you ever we do not do line? that because I don't want my mustache determined, the fate of my mustache determined by our results. There has been a, a few wagers in our past one of which resulted in a Tacovis tattoo on my arm, um, but uh, I, I've, I've I've realized it's not very productive for me to bet on honor against the business because I'll bet against it to hedge my odds and then I'll lose and I'll bet on it and you know it won't be hedged. So I, I, you know, I just I'll just get tattoos when I want them and I'll shave my mustache when I want to. But I do like a good a good bet. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Before we get to our final questions, in the morning when you put that pair of boots on, what does that mean to you? What's what's that initial feeling? Well, uh, for, for I mean, for me at this point, having worn them, you know, literally every day for seven, eight years, uh, and obviously a lot before that, it's it's familiarity, it's comfort, it's you know, it's whatever the, the confidence to get through the day. To sound a little cheesy, uh, but. It's also, it's a choice I'm making that I feels more, uh, it feels like I have more agency in that choice than a lot of other things. You know, I, you know, a pair of blue jeans, kind of, you kind of wear the same pair. You know, I, I'm not just wearing a pair of shoes because it's comfortable or, you know, it's easy. I, uh, you know, I think when you, it, it puts a little more interest behind the choice. It puts a little more intention behind what you're wearing. And I think, you know, one thing we've talked about internally when it comes to our, uh, to our brand and, and, and how we want people to feel. Cause really that's ultimately what we're selling is we're selling a feeling, uh, and great brands connect people to feelings. And, and, you know, we, we connect people to confidence. We connect people to hopefully a more genuine version of themselves. And I think, uh, you know, our job is going to be to convince more people that at least some part of you genuinely, the, the boot will represent and, you know, kind of trust us, you put it on for the first time and it'll, you'll kind of plop in and it'll feel more comfortable than you probably expect if you've never worn them before. And I mean, when you see people wear them for the first time, and that's not just our boots, although, you know, I'm biased, obviously, 
you know, you'll see a smile on their face. They, you know, they walk a little taller. That's one of our taglines is walk taller. Um, and you know, it's literally and figuratively. And, and I, I certainly feel that way every day. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll be on a vacation and, you know, with a, a swimsuit and I won't be wearing them. And I, you know, I'm a little shorter. I'm a little, <laughs> doesn't feel as good. So, so don't wear them with swimming suits. Is that, is that I, a recommendation? No, I, I, no, I, I I'm never going to say to not wear them. I, I'm a, if shorts with cowboy boots takes off, we're here for the trend. Hey, we're hey, here for it. Uh, <laughs> underwear and cowboy boots ain't a bad look. It's, yeah. uh, it can be sexy. It can be pulled There's off. There's a guy in Times Square, I think, who exactly, pulls that off. Exactly. He does it well. He does it with pride and he walks taller. So, Paul, I can't thank you enough for joining us. But before we let you go, the point of this podcast is not just great conversation with high performers within a, a vast range of industries, but it's to take very poignant, salient lessons learned and recommendations from you guys. So, first question is, how is Paul going to judge whether he's lived life well. What's that metrics for you? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, I, yeah, the truth is I'm in the process of answering that this year. Uh, it's one of my goals for this year and, in uh, therapy actually, but, uh, I would say I don't have a metrics driven approach today. Uh, I've been inspired to think more about it. I actually was listening to a podcast with, uh, Martin Short, uh, the, you know, the comedian was being interviewed and he, he of all people, I mean, I, I had no idea. He's very thoughtful about how to measure his life. He has nine, nine uh, components of his life. He thinks about it's like self and health and health and wealth and career and family. And, and, uh, and he rates one out of 10. I don't know if it's once a month or once a week or what, but I, I'm very much looking forward to being more thoughtful about that. I think mine will be a little different um, than his. I think mine is going to be more about balance to be sure, um, uh, but also impact on others. And so I think the way I've thought about it to date, which is, you know, could use a lot of improvement is, you know, first, you know, myself, like I've got to be in a good spot. I got to be healthy. I got to, if I'm not working out every day, uh, every morning, you know, I've got a, I've got a little Peloton and, you know, weightlifting routine. And if I don't get that in the morning, I'm not going to feel good. And I know that about myself. If I'm, you know, if I, if I'm drinking, you know, if I go out to dinner too much, you know, if I'm not being healthy. So it starts with that, it starts with healthy sleep. And then I think it starts with that. And then beyond that, it's balance. And it's, and for me, again, the balance is, is in some ways easier. Uh, you know, I've got a great team, uh, still no kids, uh, you know, uh, not married yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, so there's different pressures in my life, but I uh, really, the thing that I think I'm going to think more about, and then I want to add to that list that maybe I'll not be as apparent in some of the other things I've seen is, is impact, uh, and really what impact do I want to have? And, you know, really today my impact has mostly been, you know, it's through Tacovas and that's, that's fine it's obviously consumed my life and, you know, impacting people by creating a good product is and giving them a great experience. You know, that, that's the impact that's going to have to, you know, do for now for the most part and creating jobs, you know, we've got, you know, 400 people in the U S and probably just as many or more. And, you know, globally who are really drawing an income because of Tecovis, which makes me proud. Um, but I think the, 
the big thing I'm working on uh, is focusing more on how you make people feel. And I think I've had to be a lot more intentional about that. What are those one to three tenets, those principles, those non-negotiables by which you live your life, or at least try to stick to as best as possible? Yeah, I also a great question. I, I think it's 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 emblematic in in some of our it's infused in kind of our values and as, as an org. I think in, in some ways, I think striving to do the right thing has been is our number one in value internally and. You know, in some ways, it's it's cheesy. It's like, well, of course, every company wants to do the right thing. You know, why why would a company not have that as a value? But I I do think, to me, I view it more as a as a as a call to not necessarily do the, the easy thing, but to do the right thing. And 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 I think, you know, in in work, it it means having a growth mindset, and often, and I think that flows into to me. If I'm not growing, if you're not growing, you're not you know, you're not living and, and, you know, growing means different things, uh, to different people. And it means different things. It'll mean different things to me in my life at different points in my life. I'm having to grow in very different ways, uh, than I've had to grow before. And then, yeah, honestly, I'd say the third is, 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 this is new. I think, uh, there's do the right thing. It's, it's growth mindset. It's being centered. Um, and what are your personal non-negotiables? And I have mine and, and, you know, mentioned a couple of them. Um, and I think it's similar again to what I just said, which is something I've had to work on, which is you're, you're having an effect on people, you know, any, all the time, every day. And, and I, I, my, my big, my biggest to-do list on my non-negotiables is to be a lot more thoughtful about how did people feel, not just, you know, I, I've thought a lot about over the years with how people feel when they put on a pair of boots and how they feel when they go on the website and how they feel when they walk into one of our stores and how are they greeted. And, and I, and I'm now, you know, that, that, that stuff is on a good track to be honest. Like it doesn't need a lot of my, doesn't really need a lot of my input to, to figure out how to make that many people feel good in those ways. So I'm a lot more focused on figuring out what that next, that next thing is, which is tied into the growth mindset. Well, when you figure that out, let us know and we'll bring you back on the All podcast. Right. Um, well, no, between how you measure your life, trying to figure that out right now from being more intentional, impactful, balance, how other feel, people feel. Uh, I think, especially in the wake of COVID, we're all struggling with those questions and those are excellent answers. And I'm going to say, strive to do the right thing. That's not cheesy at all. It almost is a, a, a tagline that every company puts up on the wall. And there's a famous company in Houston that had integrity, communication, service, and excellence on the wall and fell far short of the integrity. I know <laughs> that's the, uh, the yeah. end rods of the world. If they feel like they have to put that up, but the difference between those that actually mean it and follow through on it is far and few between. And I know that you guys mean it and you're living it and it's apparent in the brand. I appreciate Where that. Where is the best place for our listeners to go find your organization and make that, that, that first order of, uh, of boots. Well, we are ready for them. We, uh, best place is to, to go to our website, uh, com T E C O V A S. Uh, we do have 20 retail stores. If you live near one of our stores, I highly recommend going in. They, uh, there's complimentary beverages, uh, boot shines, friendly faces, comfortable couches, 
and you don't even have to buy anything to go. You can just go if you want. So uh, I think we're in 11 states. So increasingly uh, probable that you live a close, a short drive from one. And we recently visited your store doing a men's journal guide to Austin. And that is one hell of a customer experience. I mean, you guys have defined, you, you've made it remarkable. Uh, as, oh, I love it. I'm glad you, our I'm glad you felt that way. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And for all of you, this is the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast, and we will be back. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening.